Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On Wednesday, 22nd of July, Professor Ian Williamson, Dean of the Wellington School of Business and Government, chatted with alumna Katie Brown in a webinar for alumni. They talked about her experience leading the digital communications team in the Unite Against COVID-19 campaign for the New Zealand government and the challenges she and her team faced. Uh, Tinakoto, Tinakoto, Tinakoto Kator, uh, Talafalova. My name is Professor Ian Williamson. I have the privilege of serving as the Dean of the Wellington School of Business and Government here at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. And tonight we have a very special event. Uh, one of the things that we like to do as part of our business school is to ensure that we have timely, relevant, and provocative seminars that we're able to share with our community. And we hope that that allows individuals to learn, but also provides a space for us to reflect on those issues or activities or events that are quite important in our lives. And certainly over the last several months, there could be no more important event probably in our lifetime uh, than COVID-19. And New Zealand has had its fair share of challenges around this, but I think one of the great outcomes has been how successfully the, con the country has managed this. And so one of the ways in which the country has been able to effectively manage this has been through the way in which the government has been able to communicate with its citizens. And that's always important, but I think it's particularly important during periods of crisis and challenge. So tonight, we're very, very pleased to have with us Katie Brown. Uh, Katie uh, is affiliated with Nati Rokawa, uh, Nati Fatua Oraka, Orake, um, the iwi here, the iwis here in New Zealand. She holds a Bachelor's of Commerce and Administration from none other than Victoria University of Wellington, uh, where she specialized in marketing and management. She came to study, as it turns out, to Wellington because a family member of hers was working in the parliament, uh, which happens to be across the street, and she wanted to study in the midst of where it all had to be happening, uh, and which is great. That's, that's one of the things we pride ourselves on and being at the center of it all here at our university. Um, I understand that it wasn't initially her interest to go into digital marketing, but she had a paper, and, and it's always nice when I can give a special shout out to one of our, our faculty members, Val Hooper, Professor Val Hooper, uh, who taught her internet marketing. And I gather that was a very important turning point in her education and perhaps started her down the path. And I should say, Katie, I shared that with Val today, and she was very, very touched that her class had an impact on you in that way. Katie is a social media and digital communication specialist. Uh, she started her career at Trade Me and as a student while she was here at Victoria University of Wellington and then stayed on at that institution after graduation. She then moved on into web design agency and then a digital communications and social media for various New Zealand government organizations. In 2018, she launched her own firm, Social Good, a digital and social media content agency. And since March 2020, Katie has been the digital communications lead for the New Zealand All of Government response to COVID-19. Katie, welcome. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us this evening. Thank you, Ian. It's lovely to be here. And um, yeah, pleased to be able to talk about social media and COVID-19. So I'm going to jump right in. Um, I think one of the things that everyone will want to be very curious about is COVID-19, the response that the government had, and, and how communications, particularly digital communications, play such an important role in that. So I'm going to take you back a few months, and we're going to go back to a particular day. We're going to go back to March 23rd. Uh, that was a big day for us here in New Zealand. I think many people will remember what they were doing that day, um, because that was the day we were told we were moving our alert level to alert level three. 
uh, where in essence all non-essential businesses were closing. All events and social gatherings were canceled. Uh, schools were closed. Uh, I know we were in a mad rush here at our university to figure out what we were going to be doing. And on top of that, we were told we had 48 hours uh, before we went into lockdown level four, which basically meant individuals could not leave their home uh, with the exception to perhaps get some fresh air, a little bit of exercise, go into the supermarket, pharmacy, or other things in terms of seeking medical help. Um, and that, be, that started a, a six-week process of a lockdown here in New Zealand, which, as it turns out, was quite critical to the health and well-being of the country. So I want to take you back to that point in time. And I wanted you to maybe describe to the audience that's with us this evening, what, was, what, was, what were you working on? What was it like that day? What were you doing? What was leading up to that point? And, and what is the, how do you recall that day? Okay, I, I recall that day very, um, it's very, very clear. And actually, it was probably the lead up to that day that was most clear in my mind. Um, I'd been working on COVID, on the COVID-19 response um, from March 10th. And uh, at that point, we had no cases. And then slowly, we were starting to get a couple of cases in and preparing. And at that point, um, they stood up the, um, the all of government response to COVID-19, which was Unite Against COVID-19. So, so hopefully um, those in New Zealand would have seen the yellow and white branding. It, we were everywhere. Yeah. Um, so that was a, a lot of time was spent getting that website up and running with all the information people needed, um, setting up the social media channels um, and starting to build a bit of um, following there because we needed to be seen as the uh, one source of truth um, because this was a cross-government um, campaign people needed one place to go for, for the right information. And that was the Unite Against COVID-19 brand. So um, at that point, there was messaging out around that alert level. Um, the alert level system had been invented, which was a big thing. Um, and it was a common language for people to use to understand what, what level we were at and um, what they could expect. It was, for me, it was really scary um, in the few days leading up to uh, full lockdown um, because I guess we were all working on it and we were wanting hoping the best for New Zealand but I guess none of us had really anticipated the whole country going into lockdown maybe an area um, mm. but it was a full lockdown and it happened really quickly um, and so what that meant for us was that we had to prepare ourselves to prepare New Zealand uh, for this lockdown. And so, yeah, so for me, uh, I, had, I had quite an emotional day, the day we found out that it was going to be happening. And then I had a very immense sense of duty to make sure we got it right. Social media was such a pivotal channel for a lot of people, a lot of disconnected people and perhaps isolated people. And um, our role in, in delivering messages to people and the channels that they use was so important. So I really felt that responsibility on my shoulders, but um, I also felt incredibly grateful to have that, um, have that role um, to play in, in guiding New Zealand through. Yeah. <laughs> So you, you said we, I mean, obviously you had a team. So how many people were on your team and, and how did you go about forming your team? Um, so I, I had, I had a look back, actually, I, I had 21 people over the whole campaign, um, campaign, I mean, um, by lockdown levels. Um, but I, I think maybe we had 10 at one point through the, through the, um, through the lockdown. So the, mm -hmm. 
level four, level three. And um, we were providing social media support from seven in the morning to about 11 at night. Um, mm. We had some night owls that liked working at night. So they'd just sneak in and, and um, reply to people. Um, and the way that I formed the team was really through my network. So uh, I needed to be able to trust the people that were joining the team. Um, and I needed to be able to trust that the work that they did was um, of top quality. Uh, they understood government. They understood tone. They understood what people needed to know and, and answer their questions. And they could work in a high-pressure um, mm. high environment. Also work remotely. So that was another thing. Um, there are a couple of people that I had never met and um, I still haven't met, but they worked <laughs> all the way through. Uh, I was really lucky to get um, to second a few uh, of our top stars um, in social media across government. Um, I kind of thought of them like my Avengers, you know, kind of yeah. pulling in the best of each of the different <laughs> spots and just really grateful for the home agencies um, for letting me loan these amazing, they're amazing people. Um, so yeah, it was through networks. Um, I run a group called the Government Social Network for people who work in social media and government. Um, I leaned on that a lot. Uh, so we'd just post in, in there and say, is anybody free? Is anybody available to work for us? Any hours will do. Um, we had an hourly roster mm. um, and people would just pop in the hours that they could work. Uh, some people were volunteers, so they'd just pop in in their lunch break after work in the morning just to help us clear out things. Yeah, just really good networks, really connected in Wellington. Um, yeah, that's that's how, how I formed the team. Yeah. <laughs> so here you are, you have this, you know, this, this important responsibility uh, on what is clearly the most critical issue that we're dealing with at the time. You have this group of individuals that you've accumulated, uh, as it turns out, some of which you had not even met before, some of which perhaps you had worked before, before. And they're working remotely and they're dispersed. And, and you're supposed to lead them in some way, shape, or form and ensure some consistency around it. How did you, how did you manage that? How did you find that? What were was, what was some of the learnings you took about leading that diverse, dispersed, uh, virtual, high-pressure, uh, quickly organized team? All the things we would tell you not to do if we were trying to plan a team. I know, I know. It's, um, it's, it was crazy. Um, first of all, we used, we used um, Google Hangouts um, mm. for our regular catch-ups. It seemed to be the most accessible and, um, and easy-to-use um, channel. And we had daily stand-ups. So from my work at Trade Me and in tech um, businesses, um, I'm very familiar with the Agile methodology, mm. methodology in terms of project management um, and also in team management. So that Kanban style to do, doing, done. Uh, so so we, we set up a lot of that style of, of work. Um, I also was very fortunate to nab um, someone who is a project manager and a comms person. Oh, wow. and so yeah, so that's a killer combo. Um, and so she was able to set up some of the systems for us and get our team rolling um, and, and tick off a few of the boxes while I was busy running around doing other things. Um, she was kind of organizing things for us, which is, I think is a really important role. So I think the daily stand-ups, we did morning one and then an afternoon one so that mm. we could give the information that the team needed in the morning and, and then we'd deliver that during the day and then we'd check in with our night crew as well. Um, and that was just making, making sure that consistent voice went through. Um, the virtual teams really worked. Um, people were all at home anyway. Um, they had to connect online somehow. Mm. Um, yeah, so 
we just used all the technology we could. Um, I also think that when I select people or when I um, try and recruit in a team, I always think about how they work with each other as well mm. um, and working with different strengths. And so I think we had strengths in all these different areas like crisis management, project management, brilliant writers, um, brilliant social social media people. And we had a really good combo of all of those. Um, so yeah, really, really the Avengers of, of social media and government. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like them. Well, we don't want a sequel, to be honest. <laughs> no, we don't want a sequel. We don't need a sequel. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, what were some of the channels that you found were most effective or most popular with the public in terms of the outlets you were using to, to convey the message? Uh, I mean, Facebook is New Zealand's biggest channel. Um, mm. and, and like it or hate it, it, it is um, a really effective way to communicate with people. So uh, we found our most engagement was there. Um, we reached, you know, a lot of our posts would reach 1.1 1, 1 .1 million people. And when we mm. have a, a nation of 5 million, that's a good chunk of New Zealand that are, are mm. receiving our message, which is a good thing. Instagram had a younger skew with our with our age um, age groups, but it was we found it really valuable when we did the stories and, and allowed people to tell us what they're thinking, how they're feeling, give us feedback. Um, we got all ages, all ethnicities, um, all sorts coming through, and that that showed us that there were a lot of people that wanted to communicate, but perhaps not publicly. Mm. Um, so we I think we have about fifty thousand people following us there, and about. 200 on um, Facebook, LinkedIn. We were present for the business community there. Um, we're not as effective there, but but it's still a, an important channel. Mm. Um, and then where else were we? Twitter, Twitter is a slow burner as well. It was another important channel for us to deliver um, messages to, um, to probably more the business community, um, the political groups, um, uh, yeah. So all of the channels were helpful in, in their different way, but Facebook was definitely the most powerful for us. What were some of the types of messages or frequency, frequent messages that you found yourself really having to either respond to or make sure you communicated out to the public during that period of time? Or were there particular themes of messages that you found yourself really having to focus on to ensure that the public was well, um, was well communicated to? Yeah, um, so it, it moved as the policy changed. So, um, you know, as new decisions were made about, um, about you know, maybe lifting restrictions or breaches or, um, you know, uh, as we moved into level three, people were allowed to go swimming but not boating. Um, so there were very specific questions that came at each each level mm. um, but at the heart of it people just needed to know how they could live safely at mm. each level and they were looking to us to provide that information um, so we tried to give them as much as we could and one of the one of the methods that we used was we would feedback the themes of questions that came through um, each day and would feed them back into the main campaign okay. and then from that main campaign, those messages would go out onto radio, TV, um, they'd go into print the next day, um, they'd go in every different channel we were in, um, and they would answer the questions, the trending questions that were happening on our social channels. Um, so I really like to think of our, our team as, as the voice for the public back yeah. into campaign and back into um, the leadership and say, people really need to know about this or they're asking a lot of questions about this. So, yeah, I mean, um, it changed all the way through as we made changes and as, as there were tweaks. So there was no real main theme. Yeah. 
So it's really fascinating to hear how the use of social media in this case and how it linked up with other forms of communication and other forms of media. To some extent, you might have been sort of the, the, the first port of call for responses. And that, mm-hmm. how, how did you navigate that coordination with the other channels and the other activities that were going on within the government? It helped that we were all in one place. So mm-hmm. we were all working from the agency that we were um, doing the campaign from. So we'd have like, we'd be making decisions on print together we're alongside people signing off print copy. Then we'd say, okay, we need this for social. Then we need this for the website. Um, so it was very collaborative um, all the way through. So, so there was that. And then from the customer service perspective, we used um, a, a program called Sprinkler, um, which pulled in all of the different um, all of the different channels that we were on and the questions that were being asked, and then categorized them based on you know what the question was, and then our team would go in and answer them, um, and and they'd be prioritised based on um, you know the time they sent it, the words they used, and that sort of thing. So yeah. It? So yeah. it worked, right? And, and and we're in a situation now where we're at level one. Obviously, the threat of COVID is still there, but we're able to maintain you know, high quality of life here. And that was in no small part because of the effectiveness of the government and the campaigns in terms of communicating. So that's hopefully given you a little bit of time to hopefully first and foremost catch up on your sleep because it sounds like there were some pretty long days there. Yeah, there was, yeah. And um, but also maybe perhaps reflect a little bit on the experience and anything you, you might want to share with the audience that you, you learned as part of this in terms of leading this really important, very complex digital campaign, but also anything that might've surprised you. I was incredibly proud of, of the work that New Zealand did to get us to the point that we're at. Um, we may have very different views on all sorts of things, but we were really united and um, we were really proud to achieve this together, this, mm. this, um, this shared goal. And I think it showed how competitive we are as a nation. You know, we're this tiny little island on the you know, South Pacific and um, we're, we're super competitive. So we, we just wanted to nail it and we wanted to nail COVID. And, and it was, um, I was incredibly proud. Um, and when I look overseas at compliance um, and, and people following um, orders from the government, it's much lower than here in New Zealand. Mm. And so I think at the heart of it, people do trust the government to make good decisions for them. And they were willing to do what it, what it took to, to bring us all to safety. So yeah. I, think, I think that really surprised me. I, I thought maybe we'd have a bit more of a kickback, but actually people were very, very united in, in getting through this together. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole baking thing, um, <laughs> it was a global thing, but it, it happened, you know, everybody was into baking at some point when they were staying home. Um, so that was quite interesting that it was a shared global trend um, mm. that everybody felt like baking. Um, I think that we can move things really quickly when we need to in government (laughs) Um, we can make things move there's so many smart brains um, out there that are doing incredible work and I think when we collaborate we can bring up come up with some pretty amazing things yeah yeah I think certainly one of the lessons I've taken from all of this is um, I will never underestimate how much can be accomplished in 100 days ever again uh, or how much things can change in such a short period of time Mm. Um, and, and, and that certainly can give you confidence about some of the bigger challenges you might face a, 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 in any situation. 
So I, I want to take you back to your time here at Victoria University of Wellington. And um, if, we, if we had a time machine and I took you back to that moment in time and you happened to bump into yourself as you were going to one of your classes, um, what would you tell that, what would you tell that Katie uh, who had this inkling of an inspiration about digital communication? What would you tell her are the skills that she should be really focusing on if she really wanted to be successful in this career? What type of skills do you think a person today um, who's listening maybe today or who's followed you more recently, what, do you, what would you tell them in terms of the types of skills they should develop to be successful in this industry or in this setting? Well, I think at the heart of it, it's curiosity, right? It's, mm. it's the ability to look at something and unpick it and wonder why something is that way and then go and seek data and evidence to back back up that gut feel yeah. um, or that you know so so a lot of the time um, a lot of the time we yeah we have these gut feels but it is based on the knowledge of what we've seen yeah. um, so I would I would tell her to do some more in data science maybe <laughs> um, I think that, that that's a it's an important skill I think critical thinking really um, understanding the wider context of, of the decisions that you're making. You know, networking is really important. Um, mm. Push yourself to go and have those conversations with people at those awkward networking events because you never know who you bump into. Um, you'll see them later on down, down the line and you'll be working on the same project together and you'll go, I know them, they, they do that, this work. And so I think the, the, the importance of networking and putting yourself out there and connecting with other people is, is, is really, really important, especially in this, in this industry. So if I, if I had a second chance to use a time machine, that took you 15 years into the future from today, yeah. I'd be curious to get your sense as to what do you think um, the future, Katie, will be assuming, you know, that you're still in the, data, the digital communications area. What, what will that look like? What will you be working on? What will be the future of digital communications and communications and marketing? The future of digital communications, well, I think um, the nature of, of what we do, digital communications marketing, um, is that we're constantly evolving. Mm. And so the dis disciplines that I learned back at Victoria, you know, um, however many years ago it was, <laughs> um, still apply. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's the same disciplines, but it's, it's, they're just applied on a different medium, right? Mm. Um, so I don't know what technology will be available, but I'll be on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think the key is just being able to evolve and, and really be a high user of, of whatever um, whatever is in front of us and, and really being kind of at the ahead of the curve in terms of technology and understanding how that might work in delivering messages. Yeah. So I, I've, I've noticed a question that's come up that might be timely to what we're talking about right now. And the question uh, which was provided by Alice was around difficulties associated with fake news or misinformation. And certainly one of the things that when people talk about digital communication platforms and, and the like today, but also bigger concerns going forward is around how do we ensure um, the accuracy, the validity of information and, and what are the channels around that? So I'd be curious in, in your situation dealing with COVID-19, how, how did you handle that or were there situations you had to handle around that and then also just your thoughts about how the sector, the industry going forward should be thinking about that. Yeah, good, good questions. Um, so the, the, the first part is how do we handle, um, how do we handle fake news throughout mm. the campaign? Um, yeah. So first of all, having our team almost around the clock 
replying to people on social media and really neutralizing some of those um some some of that fake news and and giving them the information they need to you know complete their um their their questions because a lot of the time it was just a lack of information that you know created these big questions and and then they'd go off on a tangent so a real key role for, for our social media team was just making sure that we we're providing the facts and giving people the information and saying, here you go, this is what it is. Um, another element was really good um, filtering um, on, on our um, social media, on our Facebook. Hmm. Um, you can't filter on, on any of the other channels, but on Facebook, we had um, a profanity filter. Um, so we had to add in 5G onto that list because mm. we were just getting slammed with um, 5G conspiracy theorists. Mm. And um, I, I really believe in freedom of speech, but when it was putting people um, putting people wrong and the information was actually putting people's health at risk, yes. um, then we had to draw a line there. Um, Facebook were really good. So we were, we were working with Facebook and Google all the way through. Facebook were really good in supporting us in um, in, in stopping those fake news messages that were going through as well. So they'd put on their filters quite high in terms of what was shared with people um, and stopping paid ads for fake news as well. Mm. And then I guess from the wider side of things in terms of how should we deal with it in general, I think the the nature of us all being in lockdown, I've read somewhere that it, it, it heightens the um, conspiracy theorists um, mm. and, and, and cults and things like that because people have a little bit more time to think about it and read into things. Uh, I think being as transparent as possible, uh, particularly as government agencies, um, providing transparent information, data, and um, as soon as people ask for it, I think really helps in that respect. Mm. Um, I think it really helped having a range of different um, experts, epidemiologists, um, different people who were able to contribute their scientific knowledge to that conversation, that really helped. Uh, but we also need the technology um, platforms to help us as well. Um, and that's where, you know, the likes of Facebook and um, Google uh, mm. are really come into play and, and they actually have a really important role in managing that, yeah. So obviously this was a very dynamic situation you were dealing with and how were you able to, and things were constantly changing um, and no one had a answer to all the problems when we first started and the advice was constantly changing. How were you able to evaluate and how were you and your team able to evaluate what was or wasn't working on the fly? How, how did you come together as a team to understand, you know, when you would need to pivot around certain things? Oh, the public would tell us that, that <laughs> you know, like if, if we if we didn't provide the answer or if we didn't provide a good enough um, amount of information about a certain topic, they would be asking us. Hmm. And so so it was almost live, you know, I would say, oh, shoot, everybody's asking about this. OK, great. We'll do a post about it. Hmm. Um, you know, it might be about travel exemptions or it might be um, about dog grooming. That was another interesting thing I didn't know, but it's an animal <laughs> It's, it's an animal welfare thing if people yeah. don't get their dogs groomed. Um, so we, we had all of these different little micro problems that would surface, but the public would tell us. Mm. So we would, we would use their feedback, their questions, feed them back in, either put them into the you know, nationwide campaign or we'd do specific posts 
based on that one question, mm. like custody, for instance, got really tricky understanding, you know, if people were split up and they had to drop their child off, which was over a region, is that okay? Um, so there were all these different little things, problems of living that would surface uh, that we were trying to, we were trying to um, help answer in real time. Yeah. Mm. How did you ensure that your team was connected with go other government departments to ensure you were getting briefed effectively? Was there a routine that you had around that or was there, like, maybe routine is probably the wrong word. I probably, there was never a routine, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, how did you manage that? Well, I mean, um, so this was a national crisis response, right? So there's a stand up every day with all of the all of the government leads mm. um, and they were feeding in, they had their questions. We had someone at that table, they'd yeah. bring that information back in and, and feed that into our team and then I'd disperse it out to my team. Um, so so really good systems. I mean, um, unfortunately, we've had a few crises here in New Zealand, like mm. the earthquake, Christchurch yeah, yeah. earthquake, Christchurch earthquake. Um, so, so there's crisis teams um, that work within government who are very familiar with setting up good systems um, mm. for sharing that information, making sure all the right people are at the table and that information's dispersed wherever it needed to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank, and thank you, Sock, for raising that question to the, from the audience. Uh, we had another question that came from Ricarda, which was um, really thinking about the use of social media and how it is used or how it is appropriate for certain audiences and, and particularly thinking about children and kids. And there's quite a bit of information about uh, perhaps negative use of social media by children and how it impacts kids, but also it is an important platform for how they gather information. And I'd be curious to get your sense as to how your team approached um, specifically thinking about social media and information that was shared for, for kids, but also how you thought about different types of audiences on social media. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so when we started the um, Unite Against COVID-19, we had a lot of different... Um, considerations for all the different audiences that we mm. need to cater for. Um, what also happened was that there are specialist groups who work with kids, work with, um, you know, different groups who were doing some amazing work. And we were just able to uplift that from the all of government channel um, and give that a louder voice. Um, so, so we weren't targeting messaging to kids at all. It would be the parents. Um, but we would try and give a little bit more air to to some mm. of the places that were focused on delivering information for parents or kids. Um, yes, and, and in terms of the audience segmentation, we absolutely did um, target different audiences and consider different audiences for our messages. When your campaign is for the whole of New Zealand, <laughs> um, it, it, you know, you have two levels of information, right? You have your all of government campaign stuff which was the consistent message um, that came through every day and people in New Zealand will be familiar with the COVID-19 beeps and things that, yeah, yeah. you know from the news um, and then we had our, our organic content um, and that was responsive to what the audience needed so sometimes it was parents dealing with custody issues sometimes it was dog owners sometimes it was boat owners who want to go boating um, so we would have a very defined audience for each of our different pieces of content that we would push out and we'd be quite satisfied like quite content with the fact that 
the right people that need to get this message will receive it. Hmm. Um, and because everybody was in lockdown, we had a captive audience as well. Hmm. Um, we had the 1 p.m., uh, which everybody was used to, where Jacinda and Ashley would stand up and speak and give people the update. And people were very used to knowing that that, that routine. Um, we spoke with uh, a psychologist, uh, Dr. Saab Johal, to help inform a lot of our um, campaign um, language and, and approach. And one thing that he, he gave us was that um, through this period of un uncertainty, it was so important to provide some certainty with what to expect um, each day. So mm. people knew that at 1 p.m. every day, jump online, they know what the state of play is, they can go back and do whatever they need to do in their lives. And there was a little bit of settling of anxiety through that. Um, and then the other thing was providing that um, that level alert level framework, which gave people an expectation as to what happens at each level and what you know what they can expect, and then they can plan their lives around that. Mm. So I'll ask a question, maybe a little bit bigger than just COVID nineteen, and it maybe it links on to the last question around social media, how it's used for different audiences, and this is really a question more around ethics ethics and social media and maybe responsibility. And, and I guess maybe people think about that oftentimes as ethical marketing. And, and I, I think like any tool, it can be used for good, it can be used for harm. Um, but I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on um, how this issue of the media, the platform, the, the, the responsibility and ethics should play a role in this. Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of ethical marketing. Um, mm. I think one of the things that I, I really struck me when I was studying at Victoria was the incredible power that marketers have. Um, mm. and, and, and that was, you know, we would look through uh, mosaic data, so understanding the different audience segments, um, census data, and then now we've got Facebook data, which gives us this huge demographic data set that mm. you know if you need someone to receive a message you can get them to receive that message and what that means is that we um we have a lot of power to do good but also do bad yeah. and and i think we need to breed really good marketers with good um good morals and good ethics um and so i think uh one of the really cool tools that facebook has brought out is this transparency tool which will help during the election. So Facebook slash dot com slash ads slash library. Um, so you can type in any um, account, any political party, whatever you want, and, and you can see all the current ads that are running live now. Um, and, and that really helps with the transparency side of things in terms of fake news um, and in terms of making sure that the, the messages that are putting out there, uh, that are put out there are correct. Mm. But yeah, I think I think as we get more platforms, as um, I think we've seen in the last probably couple of years, people's trust in these platforms has diminished significantly. Yeah. So as marketers, we need to actually work really hard on gaining trust from our audience in the first place, um, so that so that they will receive a message. Um, mm. I know this generation Z's. Like the six second generation so we've got this <laughs> tiny window of time um to to get their trust but once you have their trust then they're all you know it's it's um they're all on board so i think um as marketers it's about being honest and transparent mm. and and making sure that um you know if you're working for a company that is doing unethical things 
you're raising that and and you're trying to bring bring ethics into wherever you're you're working yeah i mean it's interesting right because we we have examples of certain types of marketing platforms being used for what i think most people would say is unethical behavior but at the same time you have examples of um, social media or social platforms being used to allow individuals or communities or groups to organize around social issues which would previously not been possible mm-hmm. and you certainly have seen um, world you know worldwide social movements and i can think of recent issues around black lives matter and and you know and a host of other activities which really would not have been possible without the ability of individuals and communities to utilize social social marketing or social media platforms and so there is this interesting power of the of the two, how do you, how do you think we can best prepare individuals? You 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 brought up the idea of ensuring that we're bringing in marketers who have that ethical framework. How do we develop that? How do we how do we ensure that we're um, we're we're bringing that type of capability to the profession? Well, I mean, I always apply my family test. You know, like mm. would I feel comfortable with my mom or 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 my grandmother being marketed this message? Mm. Would I feel comfortable with that? And I think, um, you know, when you bring it back to your own family and and how you would, all the measures that you put in place to to protect them and yourself as well, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's it's really always applying that. You know, is is this ethical? Are we doing this for the right reasons? Um, I think that's why working for government it, it is quite an easy job to do because you are bound by a set of principles mm. um, and ethics that you, you actually have to adhere to. And the work you do um, is focused on bettering on bettering the lives of, of the nation that you're working for. So um, it does make it easier when you're working for government. Mm. Uh, but I think also, I think as marketers, when we're, um, when we're graduating and, and selecting jobs, I think it's being firm in the places that you will work for mm. and that you won't work for. And, 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 you know, people won't attract good staff if they're not looking after their staff or if they're yeah. unethical in their approach. Um, so I think, you know, being very comfortable in the fact that you will find the right work if you've got the right ethics um, and, and set of morals around that. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's quite critical. And, and certainly we can talk about it within the domain of, marketing but i think the same thing can be true to any discipline of business certainly um Mm -hmm. and uh, before we were dealing with COVID, we were dealing with the recession associated with uh the global financial crisis um and then of course the fallout around that was the role of ethical or or unethical behavior in that case we're focusing on finance sector and so i think that issue around how individuals are bringing in consideration for others and ultimately the the impact of their activities, the power that they have in their activities is quite important. And certainly something we try to try to stress to give individuals a holistic understanding of how, how commercial activity, broadly speaking, impacts life, um, at least in the curriculum that we have here. Mm. So, um, you know, uh, what's next? What are the things that you are thinking about now? You've, you've had this unbelievable experience. Um, and what what do you take from that, and, and how does that set your ambitions as you go forward? Well, I mean, I, I I'm still working on COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. so I haven't really had a chance to kind of decompress from it all. Um, but there's so many things that I've learned that I can apply in any future contracts as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd really like to share what we've learned um, with other places that might might be 
um, in need of, of that additional um, knowledge or, or want to share resources or anything like that. I think that that's really exciting. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in the psychology side of things mm. um, in terms of how um, the impact this has had on, on people psychologically. Um, I'd really like to um, follow that down a little bit more and, and then see what kind of support can be provided for people because it's, you know, one thing that I, I'm not sure if I mentioned earlier was that something that was front of mind for me the whole way through is that this is, this is a, everybody will be experiencing some form of grief. Yeah. Um, and, and that's whether they're, you know, it's a loss of the way they lived and we probably won't live the way that we lived before. That's, that's a sense of grief across the whole of New Zealand. There were some people that were really isolated, really alone. Um, some people that were, you know, single mums that, that had to teach their kids, but also do their work. Yeah. Um, there were all sorts of pressures. And, and I think um, I'm really interested in, in how we can take that knowledge and do better. Um, and, and what services could we provide to people to be able to um, to survive um, should this a second wave come or mm. you know what what can we do um, beyond what we've already done to support um, a healthier uh, healthier New Zealand yeah so uh, you mentioned the pressure and the challenges that individuals are dealing with I, I mean I, I can only imagine what that would have been like for you in terms of the pressures you were dealing with uh, in in the, in the height of all of this how did you how did you ensure that you were managing your mental well-being well um yeah that's a good question um so so one thing that i really stuck with the whole way through was exercise first thing in the morning um and that mm. set my um that set my mindset um one really cheesy thing i did on the morning of lockdown that we you know because we had to walk everybody through lockdown and i was getting up very early and going into an empty streets into an em empty office and working and then coming home it was very late um and so it was quite you know it was quite a lonely experience mm. in terms of um our commitment to the job we were so busy but you don't really you know you didn't really have a chance to breathe and think about things so my um so that morning i like listened to one of those um you know those motivational videos that they have on um, YouTube. I went for a run and I was like, "Yes, I can! Yes, I can!" And it, uh, it was, you know, it, it did the trick. You know, so um, so that's what I did. I I got myself in the mindset and I was like, "Right, this is my duty. I'm going to do yeah. this. I'm going to do it really well." Um, and I really held on to that mindset the whole way through. I was just very focused. Um, but the one gift that I gave to myself every morning was um, exercise. I'd yeah. run. I'd do a you know, one of those Les Mills on demand workouts. Um, I'd do bear crawls in the garage, you know, whatever it took just to get a little bit of a sweat up and get, get that good mindset going. Um, okay. And then, you know, I was able to connect with a few of my friends on video conference when I had a break. Um, I think everybody got onto the, um, got onto the Zoom parties or the <laughs> and house party and all of those things. So, um, so yeah, I think connecting with family and friends um, and exercise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's. I, I think it goes back to what you were saying, which was uh, the importance of giving ourselves a sense of routine so we know what to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. And 
And um, yeah, it also was just interesting in the sense of, you know, our lives became quite uh, small in terms of the space that we took up. You know, we, mm. we, we lived our lives in a very small space and that, that doesn't always ensure that we're in the most physical, uh, highest physical capability. So exercise is quite important in that. Yeah. Yeah. We had our one little jog around the block that we're allowed <laughs> each day. <laughs> um, I heard it, I heard it as, the, as a mandated exercise. Um, so yeah, I think everybody, I, I saw more of my neighbors walking around the block during that, um, during that time than, than I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. 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 So oftentimes you were you were in a situation where you were having to um, convey pretty complex stuff mm. to individuals who would not have had a background or training to understand the complexity. And so uh, I think one of the, the most elegant forms of communication is when you're able to take something which is very complex and very compl complicated and communicate it in a way that is quite simple and uh, easy for a large audience to understand. How did you do that? What's, what, is the, what is the trick of the trade to, to do something like that? Well, I mean, first of all, I had a really great team of people who do that really well. So yeah. um, if you work in government and you work in digital, you should know how to write in plain English. Yeah. Um, so plain English is a, is, is a staple. So um, first of all, plain English. Second of all, looking at the words that the public are using and making sure that we're using those words. And we saw these little emergent things like the hashtag be kind and hashtag team of 5 million. Um, and, and we just start to use the same language that people use. Um, you know, I always use the test, you know, could I explain it to my 14 year old nephew? Mm -hmm. um, and, and how would you explain it to someone that's got no idea in plain English and, and, you, if you apply that test, then um, then people generally get it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Would you use your team to sort of bounce those ideas off of in terms of trying to understand, you know, or vice versa, they may come to you and you might look at them saying, I don't even understand it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. I'm a big fan of um, peer, peer writing, so peer yeah. review. Um, all of my stuff, I will pass it by someone else because mm. they can make it better. Um, and they also apply that test of, does this even make sense? Or what yeah. would you add to this? So um, what we would do was like our night crew would quite often write up our um, write up the messages. So the themes that they've seen, they'd write them up, they'd have a tile, a social media tile, it would be saved in our drafts on Facebook. And then our morning crew would come in, read through, check it, edit it, post it. Um, and so there was a really nice system of, of people writing and then mm. honing, editing and pu publishing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I remember once speaking to a journalist and, and they were stressing how when they write something, that's the first draft of history. And, and, <laughs> and very rarely should the first draft be printed. And so yeah. this importance of getting others to think about it and reflect on it is, is, is very, 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 very clearly important. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, look, people pulled us up if we got things wrong. Yeah. Say, hold on a minute wasn't it 27 and we're like oh, shoot yes yes it was <laughs> we it. sorry um so yeah i mean we we were so we were so um it was a fishbowl you know people were watching everything yeah. and and we we're really relying on us to provide that uh, uh, like one source of truth so we had to really get it right <laughs> yeah how did yeah. you i mean inevitably things are going to be incorrect if not because you know you made a mistake it's just because something changed yeah and so you how would you deal with inaccuracies how would you how would you handle that and and yet still maintain a sense of trust with the community well yeah i mean it happened a couple of times because the policy changed on us as we're writing things so, <laughs> you know so we'd respond to people one thing and then they might have changed the policy 
the next day. And so what we would do was um, the system we used was really good. You could keyword search. So yeah. if there were certain themes that we needed to follow back up and go, actually, the policy's just changed. Here's the information. Um, we'd own it, always own it. So if, if we'd made a mistake, we'd say, sorry, we made a mistake. It's this. Um, here's more information. Um, yeah, I think tra transparency and correcting it as soon as we got the information and then we'd be extra thorough and go through and search and try and find all of the instances of that and make sure that we said, we'd say, hey, look, the policy's updated. Here's, here's the most recent information. Yeah, got yeah. it. Yeah, and I mean, at one point we were getting a couple of thousand messages a day. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, we turned on private messaging uh, when, we were, when we felt confident that we could manage it because we knew that we would have um, people feeling, um, you know, the, the the mental health side of things where people don't want to disclose things publicly. But we were just really aware that we wanted to have a channel that people could go to and be directed into the right place. So we wanted those systems um, to be in place before we turned uh, we turned all of that on. Uh, and we did we did have some um, pretty major things that we needed to deal with on private message, but really thankful that we had that opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So did you did you look to other countries or other other settings to get ideas about how to communicate? Uh, different types of issues or different you obviously had a team that had different experiences but were you simultaneously looking around the world to see how other countries or other others were communicating certain issues yeah I mean we were we were always looking at how other people were marketing but um, and how people were managing or delivering the message um, mm. we would look to the WHO, the World Health Organization, yeah. or as the authority on on um, the latest information, like that PPE conversation around masks, no masks, that was mm -hmm. bouncing back and forth. Uh, so, so we would seek information from them and look at their social channels and make sure that we're aligned with them. But in terms of the campaign side of things, you know the. We did we did a New Zealand response for New Zealand, you know. Yeah. So, um, so we were deeply connected with what people in New Zealand needed and while we look overseas it was a very different approach because right. the culture is different and yeah. their information needs are different and maybe there's a bit more convincing that needs to be done whereas mm. New Zealand were like now we've got this we're going to work together yeah, yeah. the information and so we would deliver information that way rather than um, like it was interesting to see what other countries were doing quite often scare tactics mm. um, which which wouldn't have I don't think would have worked here yeah. um but yeah i think in the uk there was more um you know if you don't do this then this person could die yeah. and and we weren't fans of that and new zealanders don't seem to respond very well to that negative um yeah. negative style of of, of messaging hmm. yeah i was uh i was quite impressed um my 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 family came across the music video that the vietnam government created around preparation around COVID. i don't know if you came across and saw that they created a song a, a sort of a, a pop song they they had a, a, a music video set to which was apparently quite effective so it was interesting to see how different parts of the world based on culture try to more effectively communicate messages around social distancing, locking, you know, being locked in and various yeah. other types of health behavior. Yeah, it's, um, there was someone that, so everybody got a bit obsessed with Dr. Ashley. Um, <laughs> and there was someone that made this like um, video DJ, like a, a 
Dr. Ashley DJing and being like, we've got no more cases. <laughs> He'd posted on every single thing. And um, it was just nice. You know, we'd reply back and be like, thanks for being our best fa- biggest fan. You know, it's great to see you hyped about zero cases. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was just some really funny little pockets of New Zealand yeah, yeah. that came out. Um, and it was lovely to be able to share them as well. And so did any aspect of your campaign, how did you, well, I'm, I'm sure there was an aspect, but how, how did your campaign um, play out as it pertains to contact tracing? Were there particular types of messaging or approaches you used to get public support around that type of activity? Yeah, so the contact tracing thing was led by Ministry of Health. And we, we were, um, we're United Against COVID, which is the um, all of government response. So initially um, the push was done by Ministry of Health and they kind of had built the app. And yeah. um, and now um, I think, I think with the contact tracing, we're doing a big push on it now uh, yeah. because it's an important element of, of the response. Um, we know that there was some issues, initial issues with the app and yeah. um, which meant that trust in the app um, you know, it was a bit lower. Uh, so I would, I would certainly possibly hold it back, um, and, and make sure all of those little bits are in place and then yeah. do a big marketing campaign, um, to push, to push people's uptake of it. Yeah. Still there's 600,000 people that downloaded the app and, and that alone is really important. Just, it means that should you be, um, needed to be contacted, they can um and that's that's a good thing um we're doing a push at the moment to businesses to um to download their qr code and display it and then once the businesses have downloaded and displayed the qr code then we can push the customers to go and and scan Um, it is a difficult behavior change to um to deliver because people are very comfortable here in New Zealand um, now and we've done our work and um, you know doing adding this extra element to to life um, is a bit you know it's it's um, because the threat isn't very real here anymore it does make it more difficult to sell in the idea of contact tracing but I think on the whole people understand the importance of contact tracing um, and people are using different methods. Um, So yeah, I think the urgency of getting something out may have impeded the uptake, um, but I think it's got some really cool features now. And as the businesses actually start displaying the QR codes again, um, hopefully people will use that or any contact tracing app or digital diary. (laughs) So last question, if you look back on the experience thus far, um, and you were thinking about developing your team or even developing yourself, would there be any skills or capabilities that you, you didn't have at the beginning when you started this process? You would go, well, if I had to do it all over again, that would be one thing I made sure I, I had on my team in terms of a skill or a capability. Um, I, think, I think on the team, I'd say um, data and insights. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ability to pull in data from all these different yeah. streams and then make decisions, we were doing a lot of that on the fly, but there were, there were so many different streams of information that I think would have added to a really impactful, um, team. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, we were reporting daily 
what our digital stats were. Uh, and that was us, you know, putting, putting all the data together. Mm. But I feel like somebody who has data science um, skills, they'd be incredible on the team. Um, so I would definitely be adding them. More yeah. writers, um, I think you cannot, you can, you know, uh, brilliant writers are really hard to come by and uh, people who can just craft a message for the audience would really, yeah, that would be really great. Um, and maybe graphic design. So we were in an agency, um, the way the agency works is, mm. you know, they're, they're, you know, you put something in and they design it and send it back, but just doing some stuff on the fly would be really helpful yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, I, I will make sure we have a master's of data analysis that we run it. Uh, we offer here at our business school. And um, I will tell the students there that their efforts are not in vain. <laughs> oh, no, it, it is the most important skill, I think, in terms of making good decisions for your audience and good yeah. decisions for your marketing um, is really having the data and the understanding of how to mm. pull that data to make those decisions. It's, it's an important tool. Yeah. No, it's great to hear. And I, I have daughters and they're very keen writers and I'll, uh, I'll let them know that that's okay. That's, that's good. They should keep up with that as well. That's a good thing for them to hear as well. So, so Katie, listen, I just want to say first and foremost, thank you very much for your service to our community. Um, it really has made a huge difference in the lives of millions of individuals and, and in the most important way. So I, and I know that came with a lot of effort for you and your team. So I really want to say thank you for that. Thank you as well for taking the time to share that insight with us uh, here tonight and, you know, being so generous with your time on, on an evening. Um, and, but I'm certain that all the participants tonight benefited greatly from that. And certainly uh, it is great pride for me to be able to interview you, but even more pride in the sense that uh, I'm interviewing an alum of our, of our faculty. And so uh, it is really nice to see the things that you've been able to accomplish and the impact that you've had on our community. So thank you very much. Congratulations on the work that you've done thus far. We really wish you all the best. And of course, as an alum, if there's anything we can ever be doing here to support you, do not hesitate to come back and, and let us know. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been an absolute honor um, being able to share this knowledge. And, and um, yeah, please add me on LinkedIn if you want to uh, know anything more. I'm, I, I could talk about this all day. <laughs> sounds, good. sounds good. Well, I'm not going to make you do that tonight. I'm going to let you have some time, uh, maybe grab dinner. And to all the audience around the world who have joined us in, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we look forward to doing other events like this in the future. We hope that you found this very helpful. So, Kiora, have a good evening. Uh, thank you very much. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.